Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. If you're new to the podcast, I'm your host, Zach Mayo, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Murray. Matt graduated from Thomas Jefferson University in 2019, where he earned his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree. Following his time at Jefferson, Matt looked to further his clinical education and moved on to complete a one-year orthopedic residency at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Matt currently practices at a prominent sports and orthopedics clinic in Delaware and has a particular passion for working with runners, which is what we'll be chatting about today. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, everyone, welcome back to a new episode and to a new year. So today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Mary. Um, so before we get into our discussion about clinical management of runners, I'm going to have Matt take some time to introduce himself to everybody and tell us what he's about. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So my name's Matt Mary. Um, I graduated from Thomas Jefferson University in, I guess, 2019. So not that, not that far away. Um, and then after I graduated, I went on to do an orthopedic physical therapy residency at the University of Drexel, uh, or Drexel University, uh, in their physical therapy department. Um, so that was a 13-month-long program where I had the opportunity to work pretty closely with the athletes at the university, um, but as well as um, faculty, staff, and just local community members um, in Drexel's three physical therapy clinics. Um, Part of the, the residency training uh, was some pretty extensive mentorship and continuing education on the management of running athletes. And through that orthopedic residency, I discovered that it's uh, something that I'm pretty passionate about, um, particularly because of my own experience with some running injuries, um, but then also having success implementing some of the, the evidence and the knowledge and helping people get back to doing what they love. Yeah. So again, perfect guest to have on here to talk about the clinical management of runners fresh off a residency, starting a new job and everything. Um, so we're lucky to have you on. Um, so let's get into just some basic stuff about the common injuries we would typically see in the clinic regarding runners. So obviously this is a big population, especially if you work in kind of a sports and orthopedic clinic. Um, you're going to get runners walking in the door quite frequently. Um, sure. So talk about a little bit, or if you can share with us, some of the common injuries that you see in the clinic when it comes to runners just as a whole population. Sure. Yeah, so as far as the the diagnoses and the types of injuries that you're going to see in a running population, it really, it, it's pretty variable. Uh, but what the literature tells us as being the most common injuries is pretty consistent with what you're going to see walking into the clinic. Um, so you're going to see a lot of anterior knee pain. You're going to see a lot of um, lateral knee pain as well. You're going to see um, a lot of uh, stress fractures, whether that be the uh, tibial stress fracture or um, foot stress fractures of either the fifth metatarsal or um, even more medially, um, like a, a navicular stress fracture or something. Um, a little bit uh, lesser um, of uh, prevalence would be like an Achilles tendinopathy. Um, that's something that you'll probably see in more of a speed population. So people that are sprinting or doing more ballistic type movements. Um, and then some other ones I think that are important to not forget about um, that that are pretty pretty common to the running population that are also can be hard to differential diagnose between a stress fracture is medial tibial stress syndrome and chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Um, and I don't think you can talk about stress fractures without also considering those other two diagnoses. Yeah, of course. Cause that's, that's part of our differential diagnosis when we talk about that because treating them is very different from one another clearly. Sure. Um, especially when we talk about something like compartment syndrome. Um, it's very different than immediate than a stress fracture um, in terms of how we treat that and also the prognosis and the plan of care that we develop for that. Um, so just going off of that point, talk to us a little bit about like what would um, sway you one way in terms of like your subjective evaluation, your objectives, uh, sorry, your objective assessment. Um, some of those things that would sway you towards like a um, 
a tibial stress fracture versus chronic compartment syndrome versus um, what was the other one that you mentioned? Medial. Yeah, M- MTSS. Yeah, MTSS. So talk us through, if you could, about kind of like things that you would be looking for that would be um, more indicative of one over the other in terms of like your differential diagnosis. Yeah, sure. So first off, I, I think from a prevalence standpoint, just recognizing what is more common than other things. Um, so typically, if a runner comes into the clinic with shin pain, my brain immediately goes towards thinking more along the lines of a stress fracture or um, shin splints, medial tibial stress syndrome. Um, but then to, to kind of go even further off of that, uh, as far as stress fractures go, uh, it's gradual onset of symptoms. These are, it's people that have had, they had shin pain on and off, and then it's just progressively getting worse. And then when you see them in the clinic, that's when it gets to the point that it's bad enough that they're actually coming in because it's interfering with running, right? And so these patients will definitely have exercise-induced pain. So when they go out for a run, their pain gets worse. Um, But depending on the severity of it and how long they've had it, they might have pain at rest as well, particularly after a run. Um, It might linger around. Um, And also with uh, tibial stress fractures, I think this is the the most, um, one of the most distinguished ways to set it apart from some of the other diagnoses is there's going to be a point of like focal pain. So when you're palpating along the shin bone, there's going to be a point of basically maximal pain. Like that's where it hurts the, the most. And as you start to get um, either proximally or distally away from that, it's going to feel better and better as you get further away from it. Um, another thing uh, that you might read about in the literature as far as diagnosing a stress fracture is um, vibrations, like using a tuning fork. Um, but as far as I'm aware, the clinometrics on that aren't great. So I, I wouldn't put all my chickens into that vibration basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but the biggest thing is just gradual onset of pain. Pain is pretty local in that one spot. Um, Passive and active testing, so as far as like muscle length and joint mobility and strength, may or may not produce pain. Um, It really depends on how irritable they are. Um, And then also an objective finding that's unique to stress fractures uh, that I think we have to talk about is x-rays. We know with stress fractures, it may or may not show up on an x-ray, kind of um, depending on where they're at in that um, stress injury. Um, so I think that's also important to, to highlight is that a negative x-ray doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have a stress fracture. Mm-hmm. Um, to differentiate that between medial tibial stress, um, that's a little bit uh, more diffuse pain. So this pain is actually more likely to be a little bit more proximal too. So this is going to be in like the middle to proximal third of the medial tibia. Uh, it's, it's also exercise induced. Um, but typically this will improve with rest. So when you step away from running, it's going to feel better uh, besides like the most severe cases of it. Um, and with this one, resisted, resisted testing might be positive because there is some implication in like the posterior tibial tendon and the soleus. Um, so if you test those muscles, it might reproduce some of that pain. And then as far as chronic exertional um, or chronic exertional compartment syndrome, um, this one is, is a little bit of a different type of complaint. So these patients typically describe their symptoms as like tenderness, their leg feels tight, it feels swollen, it feels heavy. Um, they might have like uh, interme- intermittent paresthesias. So when they're, after they're exerting themselves, they might report that they feel like pins and needles in their foot. Um, objectively, you might palpate reduced pulses if the exertional compartment syndrome is severe enough or if it's an acute compartment syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, And these symptoms are actually mostly located anterolaterally, unlike the stress fractures, which are typically more medial, uh, as well as MTSS. So those are really the biggest things that I look for to differentiate those three diagnoses. Um, But again, there's a a lot of other information out there that can help you kind of window through that information. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to kind of look at the differential diagnosis because that's an important step to what we do. Um, and it's an important skill to what we do. Um, and it is, I mean, once you start having like paresthesias and you can see with chronic exertional pain syndrome or sorry, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, um, you know, their leg is swelled. Like there's other things going on that are fairly obvious compared to a regular stress fracture or MTSS. Um, and it's definitely harder to talk about it. You have to see it once or twice to really appreciate sure. like how 
severe it can get. Um, but that's important, especially if it's, you know, especially if we have a case of an acute uh, compartment syndrome and that can be sure. an emergent situation where they're going to need a fasciotomy. Um, and that's important for us to identify as well. Cause I'm sure at one point or another, somebody like that is going to walk into your clinic, especially with the amount of runners that you see, um, especially in the times that we're at where people are going from zero to a hundred with their exercise programs. Um, that's unfortunately, I could see that coming up a little bit more than we would see <laughs> traditionally. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I just wanted to go through those three because when we talk about the other ones like anterior knee pain, lateral knee pain, that stuff's really not like incredibly challenging to differentially diagnose. Um, sure. especially, yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if you are, you know, do your ligament test, your, you know, all those other things. Very rarely you're going to see somebody with a torn ACL that's running forward all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and yeah. then, you know, the stress fractures at the foot. So like the fifth metatarsal, the navicular can use the Ottawa foot and ankle rule. So we won't go into that. I don't think they're, they're pretty explanatory as they yeah, are. They're, they're pretty self-explanatory. I mean, Achilles tendinopathy is, um, it's pretty easy to identify as far as mm-hmm. like, it's one of the few running injuries that's going to cause posterior pain. Um, and then as far as anterior pain, knee pain, the only comment I wanted to make is we have to remember that this is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we have to rule out that other things are not causing the knee pain. Um, and I think that the, the CPG that was put together by the ortho um, academy does a really good job at making us more aware of these hallmark signs and symptoms, but more importantly, making sure that there's not another cause of the knee pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very important because it's there. Clearly, there's a lot of things at the knee that can be causing that particular knee pain. Not only at the knee, but if you're talking about referred pain patterns from the hip and from the back and things of that nature, can't get that as well. So that's also you have to clear that up too. But that's a good point in terms of making sure it's a diagnosis of exclusion rather than that's your first thing. Always trying to prove yourself wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so in terms of like how do we, in terms of treating some of these diagnoses or treating some of these injuries, we'll say, um, obviously it can be very challenging with a runner, especially because they're the people that don't like to stop running yep. or at least reduce their, their load a little bit. Um, they're always the people that are, have a ridiculous pain threshold. Um, and they like to push through that cause they think it's good for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, at least in the, some of the runners that I've seen, um, it's not for everybody, but at least some of the runners I've seen, that's the case. Um, so let's go from, let's go from the bottom up in terms of some of the diagnoses or injuries that we treat. So in terms of like a stress fracture, mm-hmm. right? Somebody comes in, they have a CT scan or x-ray that confirms a, uh, tibial stress fracture. You know, what is your plan of care, we'll say, looking like? Sure. Yeah. So I think when it comes to managing runners that have injuries, um, I th- it's often easy to overlook the fact that there is injury as far as like you get a runner in the clinic, you're like, oh, we got to look at your running mechanics. We got to look at your gait. What's your load man? What, uh, what's your training schedule look like? And then we forget that they actually have an injury, right? So in big picture, to treat the injury, you have to think about the pathophysiology of what's going on, right? So with a stress fracture, they have a bony injury that in order for it to heal, it's going to require the removal of the stresses that caused it to get injured in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So when a runner comes into the clinic with a stress fracture, I'm finding a way to take the stressor away from the uh, the tibia or whatever bone is what is injured. So if that means they can't run, they can't run. If you have other means that allow them to run, such as like uh, an alter G, if you're in one of those uh, bougie clinics, yeah, <laughs> um, or aquatic treadmill, or cycling, or swimming, or upper body ergometer, I'm finding an alternative way that allows them to get their cardiovascular stimulus that they're seeking all the time, um, but also protecting the injury so that it can have adequate time to heal. So. When a runner with the stress fracture comes into the clinic, they're either going to be in a boot or they're not. 
Um, most oftentimes I see that they are in a boot um, because they're coming from some type of orthopedic physician that says, you got to stop, otherwise this is going to progress. So we're putting you in a boot because this is the only way I feel like you're not going to run. Mm-hmm. So that makes our job as PTs a little bit easier, I think, because we yeah. don't have to be the person that says, don't run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for but sure. Other than that, I'm, I'm really preventing secondary complications, right? Because they're, they are walking in a boot. I, d- I don't want the talocoral joint to stiffen up. I don't want the tarsal joints to stiffen up or the subtalar joint to stiffen up. I don't want the hip muscles to get weak because they're not running anymore. They're not using them or they're changing their gait pattern. So really at that point, it just comes down to what's your physical exam look like? Are there things that you can strengthen that are weak? Um, and then just maintaining motion to the, the affected leg as well as the unaffected leg. Nice. Yeah, I think that's the most important part because when it comes down to it, it is a fracture, right? It's very different from like a tendinopathy or something of that nature. That's completely different pathophysiology, completely different healing process and classification process. If we get into like the different types and stages of a tendinopathy, um, it's that's a broken bone to some to one degree right. or another, right? So it's the treatment's pretty much the same in that. Got to let it heal. Got to take the stresses off, like you said. Um, but the point of making sure that you're making sure everything else is up to par for when that person can return to this type of movement is important. Because that's, especially if they're in the boot or walking around in a boot for a long period of time, that towel curl and all of the midfoot joints and things of that nature are all going to get stiffened up. And once that becomes a problem, that just leads, just becomes a cascade of issues. Yep. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I think also just to kind of add to what you just said there, I think um, looking for movement compensations is also important. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is when people are in a boot, they do a lot of unilateral activities, especially if they're pretty active. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you'll see them. And I see this when I work out at my gym, there's a few people that have um, cam boots on and I see them hopping around on one leg from one machine to the next. And I'm like, Oh gosh, this is another injury waiting to happen. Uh So like, I think also going over some of that stuff, like you have this boot on for a reason, put some weight through it. It's the goal. The goal of this boot is to allow you to still be mobile without causing an injury on the other leg. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to really understanding the severity of what you're dealing with. Like, yes, this is a fracture, but it is a stress fracture it's your tibia is not completely broken, right? So we can still absorb some of the stress, but we also know that the amount of stress that we take in a single leg activity when we run is way higher than when we're just walking. Um, And that's, I feel like a lot of times, like once I say like, yeah, when you're running, come down on one leg, this is how much force is going through your leg as opposed to you walking. And that typically gives them somewhat of, of an idea that, they can't take that force anymore. Um, right. So that's like an education point that I've had people kind of had like a light bulb moment with to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think, you know, in terms of just understanding the very basics of what you're dealing with is the most important aspect of it all. Right. Yep. And I think if you take that approach, it makes the treatment of anything. It doesn't matter if they're a runner or not. I think if you take the approach of trying to fundamentally understand what that pathology is with the, with your stereotypical musculoskeletal injuries, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then just approaching it from kind of like that, that top down almost um, as far as like what's appropriate for the patient and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in terms of, you mentioned this a little bit beforehand when you were first talking about management of stress fractures, but one like overarching principle for any type of really running injury and just within the sports medicine world is load management. Sure. Um, so like what are, so specifically for runners, cause this can change from like, in terms of like looking at the variables, like from a runner to a cyclist, to a triathlete, to a mm-hmm. uh, soccer player, like th- their loads met their load management and the requirements of the sport change from one to the other in terms of what they're doing. So how you manage that load and some of the variables that we look at can change from one to another. Um, so t- tell me or talk to me about like a little bit about what you look for in terms of getting a good idea of their overall 
like load loading capacity or sure their loading management like what variables do you look at um just things of that nature sure yeah so just to uh clarify a little bit as about load management i think it we have to kind of look at load manage load management in two brackets so there's the load management of appropriate training so is this per is this person training appropriately and then there's the load management of injured runners and so we're going to approach both of these things differently. And I think it's really important to, to mention that as far as load management for injury prevention, load management is a really great start for injury prevention, but there's going to be runners that still get hurt regardless of load management, right? And so I, I, that's just an important comment to make because with load management for injured runners, I would probably argue that every injured runner needs load management because there's probably a reason they got injured in the first place. And according to the literature, a lot of the times it's poor training um, practices and training um, uh, bad training habits, basically to say the least. So when we're working, when we're thinking about load management of injured runners, it's, it's really important to make them understand if, if there's the presence of training errors, it's important to make them aware of what the training errors were in the first place so that they don't make that same mistake again. And hopefully that that will reduce their risk of another running injury. And then as far as gaining information um, about their overall understanding of load management and um, what the literature shows us about total load to begin with is that I really want to know their story, what their training routine looked like. And I know earlier in the show, we talked about like, yeah, that stuff is all important, but we can't forget about the diagnosis in front of us either. But mm -hmm. you have, you can't forget about the load management either. That's why treating running injuries is so much fun because it's complicated. There's so much things, so much information we need to consider. Yeah. And when it comes to load management, the things that we really need to think about are, and this is grounded in the literature as far as like increased risk of running, because there's a lot of contradictory evidence on what causes running injuries and what increases your risk of running injuries. But some things that show up pretty consistently across the literature is total weekly mileage. So it appears like if you run, I think the number is like 60 kilometers per week. Uh, which is a little bit over 35 miles a week, I think, if I'm correct. Um, so if you run over that per week, you're at an increased risk of a running injury. Um, and if you increase your mileage too quickly over a two-week period, so I think that number is 30%. So if you increase your distance over 30% within that two weeks, that also makes you more likely to develop a running-related injury. And so when it comes to load management, this is typically where I start. So if it's an injured runner in my clinic and they are just now through the, that first two phases of rehab and now they're about to start running again, I design a return to running program with those two things in mind. So they're not running every day, one, because it's a, this stress tissue theory or this tissue stress theory mm -hmm. um, and they need time to recover. Yep. Uh, but two, their weekly mileage will not exceed 35 miles in my program. And then the, the last thing is I will not really increase their mileage. Well, I will never increase their mileage greater than 30% in two weeks. But typically speaking, the 10% rule holds pretty true, even though we don't have a ton of literature to support that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. We really we don't have much at all. Um, but in terms of like clinical applicability, it, it's a lot smarter than 30%. And it's typically like, it's that nice little sweet spot for most people. And this is obviously on an individual basis, like you said, because some people can't handle that 10%. So you got to back it off to a 5% or whatever increase that you're going to look at. Um, so weekly mileage was the, the biggest one. And then basically that percent increase in weekly mileage from week to week. Um, so in terms of, and then again, we talked about the two brackets, or you talked about the two brackets of, you know, treating an injured runner versus treating quote unquote a healthy runner, uh, but more of like a injury reduction or reducing the probability that they're going to develop something. Um, right. So those are the two biggest things. Do you monitor at all? Like anything 
in terms of the intensity with which they run like any like rpe or any type of like because everybody now has like an apple watch so they always have like their heart rate um information or anything or something like that do you monitor like that stuff as well so i think that kind of comes down to the level of the runner that it is okay so if it's someone that trains through rpe and using more of that physiological response like VO2 max and level of perceived exertion, that's someone that I am definitely much more inclined to use RPE because that's familiar with them. So if they train in heart rate zones, I will use the heart rate zones to kind of gauge what I want my return to running program to look like. Um, But as far as like just getting them back to running, I'll use the RPE to, to, craft the level of the intensity of the program itself rather than using that as a predictor of like um i want you to run at a at a seven on the board today and next week we're going to run at a level of of an eight it's it's more of a self-selected running pace so when they're getting back into running it's typically I'll typically cue the patient like today we're going to go. I want you to set the speed to what your long jog would look like. So your, your long mileage day. So let's say you typically run 11 miles on your long day. So let's pick the pace that you use for 11 miles to set your jog today, because I don't want you to gas yourself out. We're, we're running a short distance and if we made gate tra- gate changes to the running mechanics, I want that to be easier to implement because if they're in an all-out sprint, that's going to change what their running looks like. So long story short, I consider it, but I definitely don't use that solely to plan my return to running. My return to running is more focused on total volume of training. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And especially, I could see how it can, it changes from one person to the other, from like a recreational runner to somebody who's like a collegiate athlete. Um, there are different levels of performance. There's going to be different things that you have to dig deeper into. Um, and also kind of like you were mentioning is that, you know, some people, they just, they don't need that level of detail doing that initial workload management is going to be more than enough. Um, right. Yeah. So I think that's a good point. It kind of like just peppering in variables because you don't want to tackle six different variables at once. Because that way you have no idea as to what is actually working and what's not working. Sure. Um, yeah, so there's some good points. Um, so in terms of, so now, we, now that we've kind of talked about load management a little bit more. So you, before we move on real quick, yeah. do, you, do you care if I add one more point about load management? No. As far ahead. as like the, the injured runner goes and yeah. when a patient is in PT? Yeah, go ahead. I think it's important to mention that physical therapy is load. So if you have a patient running in your clinic for PT, you should probably count that towards their total weekly mileage. Just as, just as an additional thought, the things that you do in PT do count to their cumulative load that that athlete is going through during the week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that. I would also, now we're going to dive down this rabbit hole a little bit. Um, <laughs> In terms of, you know, obviously we do PT, but what, what else in terms of like stuff outside of running would you consider? So obviously you can have people that come in and they, they're like, yeah, I run this, but I also do boot camp three times a week. I do, you know, they have ridiculous fitness schedules. Um, yep. So that has to be taken into consideration as well. So how much, obviously, like running is a special amount like i shouldn't say special running has a unique impact on the body because of the amount of force that you have to absorb over miles and miles and miles and miles um as opposed to just like doing squats or something so how much um i guess how much impact would you say that you know doing something like having a regular weightlifting routine would impact your overall volume of training for like a runner yeah so I think this is where the muscle soreness rules kind of come into play. Um, So we have the University of Delaware to thank for putting those together quite a few years ago now. Um, But that's really the most simplistic way to kind of monitor total load that the athlete is going under. So when it comes to strengthening with runners, 
I, I don't see any problem with runners strengthening outside of running as long as you can educate them on like running through soreness and making sure that they take the time to adequately recover. So if, if, if we do have the privilege of seeing the runner in the clinic, I will make sure that the runner understands the muscle soreness rules and can tell them back to me so that I know that they have an understanding of if they're doing too much for one and two, if they're ready to kind of progress themselves to the next phase. So if they want to strengthen a couple times a week, as well as run and cycle and participate in workout classes, that's okay if it works for them. But if they're always sore, they're probably doing too much and it might delay their ability to get back to running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good way to keep it simple. Um, especially for people that have that type of a schedule. So I've, I've come across a few of them. Um, and it's like, oh man, you're working out seven days a week and you're running yeah. all these miles. Like, you know, you gotta calm down a little bit. Um, so having that, but that's a very nice, simple way for people to monitor themselves. Cause ultimately we're not going to be home with them. They have to be able to monitor themselves right. and they have to be able to manage their own load, um, and their own, soreness and how they respond to exercise and that's ultimately where we want to get them to the point where they don't need us i mean that's always the goal in terms exactly. of what we do um okay so in terms of um some other i guess more common diagnoses so stress fracture is obviously a big one we talked about load management and that's obviously very important with any injury that we're probably going to be dealing with with runners, um, unless it's something very traumatic, which very rarely ever happens, um, unless they're just not being intelligent while they're running yeah. on the road. Um, so one of the other ones at, you know, the lower extremities, I mean, obviously there's all lower extremities, we'll say the, the lower leg um, is Achilles tendinopathy. So obviously not that, it's not incredibly common in like long distance runners, probably more so common in sprinters and people who are doing things with more of a ballistic movement. Um, And obviously tendinopathy is a very tricky thing for us to treat because of how it presents the chronicity of it, or, you know, if it isn't chronic, but most of the time we don't see people that, you know, they started it two weeks ago or two days ago and they come into the clinic. It's like, I've had this for like six months <laughs> and sure. decided to come in now. Yep. Um, you know, that's typically the people that we see for the most part. Um, so tell us a little bit about like how you um, would manage somebody or your plan of care for somebody with an, an Achilles tendinopathy. Sure. Yeah, so if it's a if it's a runner, like a distance runner that has it, uh, load management definitely is one of the biggest things I'm considering, um, as far as like their training program, uh, as far as total volume, and like we talked about before, did they increase too quickly? Because we're thinking about this tendon injury, right? It's too much stress to the tendon in too short of a time, um, or this repetitive overuse. So. Load management. I'm going to try to get them to back off a little bit. I'm never. I will probably. And I'll, I'll never say never, but I will try to get them to reduce their total volume to the point where they can pretty much run in a pain-free range. Anything that causes, uh, as far as pain goes, anything that reproduces symptoms, I'm going to try to have them back off a little bit. As far as the rehabilitation, we know from the literature how to handle Achilles tendinopathies. There's a beautiful CPG on it from the Ortho Academy. Um, whether you choose to do heavy, slow resistance training or eccentrics training, Um, I can't speak specifically to what sets and reps I would prescribe to this population just because I haven't managed it in a little bit. Um, But I I think it's the Alfredson protocol for eccentrics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's several other uh, evidence-based heavy, slow resistance protocols out there that you're progressing, increasing their weight and slowly dropping the number of repetitions that they do over a period of time. Uh, And these patients get better. Uh, it takes a while. Um, I, I really don't expect them to get better before 12 weeks, but they get better. And as they start to get better and they're able to now increase their distances that they're running or biking or whatever, um, then we start to change out of that phase two rehab and progress them more towards a return to sport. Again, keeping in mind total load. 
I'm making them do heavy, slow resistance training. Where are they at on the soreness rules? Can they even walk without soreness? If not, that's probably not in their best interest to run if they can't even walk without soreness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've had people that uh, like going down the stairs would be sore, the Achilles. It's like, well, you know, probably shouldn't be running then. Right. You know, let's be, let's be smart about this. Um, yeah, but high, heavy, heavy, slow uh, resistance and then eccentrics are probably the two most heavily supported ones in the literature, especially from that CPG. Um, and I mean, that goes for all tendinopathies for the most part. It, I, that CPG was obviously specifically for Achilles tendinopathy, um, mm-hmm. but in many of the tendinopathies that we see, especially like patellar as well, um, yep. especially heavy, slow resistance. Um, is quite effective, at least I've seen. Um, and we can also kind of put it in different phases in terms of like their level of irritability. Because when we do heavy, slow resistance training, we take away that elastic aspect of the muscle in terms of, um, you know, we're not getting that quick shorten or quick lengthening to shortening cycle. We're taking right. that away essentially when we're doing that heavy, slow resistance, um, which is probably like one of the better places to start for a tendinopathy because that's typically the most aggravating thing I've seen. You're like that jumping and ballistic type of movements. Sure. Um, and then moving more into that eccentric area um, or doing it both ways. There's no, I don't think there's been any study on like how to exactly mix the two. It's more been this, we do it this one way and this, you know, we do heavy, slow resistance one way. We do eccentrics one way. There's no combination or no mixing of the two because it gets hairy when you start to mix that heavy, slow resistance or your resistance training with getting back into running and all those variables that come into there. Mm-hmm. I find that that window is always like the most frustrating for me because that's where you see the setbacks and that's where you see some of the, the roadblocks at least right. um, for a lot of times going back to like you have a good plan of care, but there's that individuality for these people that sometimes they just respond differently. Um, yeah, but there's, yeah, good points um, in terms of like a tendinopathy aspect. And there's obviously a lot, lot more on tendinopathy in terms of what we can do. Um, but I think that's a good kind of general principles or good um, choices, I should say, for like this type of an intervention. And then uh, lastly, we'll talk about um, before we get into like looking at the biomechanics of running, um, we'll, we'll focus on like anterior knee pain. That's definitely far more prevalent than lateral knee pain. Um, So kind of the same thing with the previous two that we just did. Um, You know, what are some of the things that you're looking for? for anterior knee pain. We kind of discussed this a little bit already in terms yeah. of it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, but you know, what other objective measurements are you looking at and how are you managing this clinically? Sure. Yeah. So I think with anterior knee pain and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the CPG that did a nice job of summarizing kind of these different buckets that patients can fall into under, um, basically movement impairments uh, with with anterior knee pain. So you have these patients that can have anterior knee pain with motor control deficits, anterior knee pain with strength deficits, anterior knee pain with flexibility impairments. So when I approach a, a patient that has uh, anterior knee pain, I kind of am thinking about these things, not so much to classify, um, but more so just to guide the treatment itself. And so if they have a quad weakness, for instance, if they have greater than an 80% discrepancy in quad strength, that's probably the primary focus of my treatment. Uh, but, but not alone, because according to the evidence, we know that hip strengthening in combination with quad strengthening uh, appears to be superior than quad strengthening alone. Um, and even further than that, if quad strengthening is truly painful for the, the patient and you can't find any way to get their pain to calm down, it's okay to start with just hip strengthening and be comfortable that you're still going to get some pain reduction benefits. And then as they tolerate it better, then I'll move into to address that quad discrepancy. And then again, with the motor impairments, if I see that their single leg squat mechanics are poor, we're going to work on single leg mechanics. 
um, especially if they're involved in activities that require them to have good motor control. Uh, if it's someone that's super sedentary and they can't do a single leg step down with ideal form, probably a little bit less concerned about that, unless that's truly the only bucket that they fall under. And then I'll be a little bit more focused about it. Mm -hmm. um, and with training, I'm expecting specific improvements. So if I'm training the, the lateral step down, I, I think it's fair to say that we expect to see improvements in their mechanics with the lateral step down. But since we're talking about runners, it's uh, if we're training a lateral step down because they have hip adduction or that FPPA, that frontal plane projection angle, um, with running mechanics, we can't expect to see those running mechanics improve because we're training motor control for a lateral step down. That's where that specificity and motor control training come into play or uh, motor control principles come into play. Yeah. Yeah, I think the CPG um, by, I believe it was like Rich, Rich Willie, um, he at least sorry that was on patella femoral pain yeah um they did a really nice job in terms of creating those those buckets or those classifications um to how to look towards them and i also find that a lot of times like they're not mutually exclusive so like you said right. you have these people that can technically fit into two or three of those buckets but you have to take into mind like the individual themselves you know, what are their goals? What are, what is the patient's history with running and what are the biggest kind of ordering the discrepancies? So like if they have like a massive difference in their quads, when you look at that limb symmetry index or that ratio from one quadricep to the next, um, however you measure it, preferably probably through dynamometry. Um, at least that's what we do at my clinic. Um, if you have an isokinetic machine, good, good yeah, on you. Power to you. <laughs> yeah. Good on you. Uh, cost a good amount of money, but dynamometry works very well. Um, and then using something like the lateral step down just to kind of see, you know, in terms of like, where's the biggest severity in terms of, is it like, Oh, I have a little bit of motor control issues, but my quads are terrible. Or do I have a lot of motor control issues and my quads are okay. Um, that's where the, the, the clinical decision-making kind of comes into play in terms of what do I address first and most aggressively with my treatment. Um, and then it is difficult, again, to kind of mix the two a little bit, um, depending upon what your decision is as a clinician in terms of like what they need to work for. So in terms of getting towards like the, we'll say like the later stages of rehab, um, so like they've improved the quadricep strength. So they've had like general improvements in their overall like quadricep strength, whatever bucket you're working on, uh, whether that be the strength or the motor impairments or slash motor control. Um, what would be like that next step to kind of put everything together? As far as getting them back to running? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a difficult question because like I said before and what some of the literature says is that when we are working on motor control training because they have deficits in whatever functional task you looked at, we can't expect that to improve their running mechanics. So, but also to the same standpoint, I think it's we would be – remiss if we looked completely past the fact that the patient can't do a single leg squat or a single leg step down without severe difficulty because if they can't even control their leg in a static activity that doesn't involve moving running is more a little bit more complicated than that they're probably not going to be able to also control themselves while they're moving mm -hmm. so the progression from specifically with anterior knee pain would be your static activities. And then I'm going to start to move into some more dynamic activities. So particularly because running is a sagittal plane sport, um, I'll start with um, single leg step downs to maybe walking lunges and uh, see how they do with a walking lunge and if they can control the knee with a walking lunge. And if they do that, 
and their pain is under control and that's not the limiting factor anymore, then maybe I'll move into like a bounding or a more of an explosive type of uh, dynamic squat. Um, because running is single leg control over time, repeated hundreds of thousands of repetitions over time. Um, and so that's kind of the progression I'm looking for um, as this progression of motor control training, but still keeping in mind that just because they can perform a perfect ballistic squat jump from one leg to the other doesn't necessarily mean that the running mechanics are going to get any better. Mm -hmm. uh, but I still think it's important that we keep in mind that progression as we try to get them back to running. Nice. Yeah. Cause it's, I feel like especially that CPG does a really nice job in laying the framework for where to begin with a rehabilitation to begin with or evaluation and putting them into buckets and then addressing those. But then once we get past a specific point, it, it's kind of a lot more muddy in terms of how we start to mix things and how we start to progress people. Um, right. So it was just wanted to hear your thoughts on kind of how you would do that with somebody with anterior knee pain and, that all makes sense from a rehabilitation standpoint. Um, so we, we talked about running biomechanics, where you just mentioned run, running biomechanics. So there's obviously a lot of literature like examining whether or not, number one, it actually matters. Number two, can we actually change it effectively? And number three, you know, what happens when we change specific variables? Like what what is the most efficient way to look at a runner, look at their biomechanics and all the other variables like cadence, um, all of the planes of motion, either at the knee or the, or the, uh, the hip, the ankle, the kinematics, if you will, um, their vertical displacement, things like that. Um, so can you speak about some of the things that, like if you were doing like a true running assessment, like put somebody on a treadmill, um, looking at their overall biomechanics and their, their running form for lack of a better term, what are some of the key things that you're looking for? Yeah. So before I get right into that, I, I do think that I, I, it's really important that you are systematic about this. Don't just go into it and with a blind approach and say, Oh, I'm going to look at these two things. Be systematic about it create a pattern in your own brain with how you approach this in the running world. There's not really a consensus on the best way to go about this. Some papers talk about a top down approach. Look at the variables from the top down. Some talk about a bottom up approach and some papers just have com their completely own way of doing it. We also know that there's some literature that various ways of doing a running analysis assessment are reliable, meaning multiple people can see the same things. Um, on multiple assessments. Mm -hmm. So I think just being familiar with uh, the different ways of doing it and maybe structuring your approach to something that's already out there. Um, but as far as like what, what specifically you look at, I think that kind of comes down to uh, like the recommendation of what we should look at kind of boils down to the all of the biomechanic studies that I that I'm not going to get into because one I'm by no means a biomechanical expert, but from what all of this literature tells us is that there are certain variables that seem to have the biggest impact on kinetics and kinematics. So kinetics being the forces through the joints and kinematics being what the motions look like at the joints. And basically from that the the things that emerge that I am looking at specifically in every single one of my running assessments, um, as well as many of the co my colleagues that I, that I am um, acquaintances with that do running assessments um, and what the literature tells us that we should look at based on the things that seem to change kinetic and kinematic variables the most is I'm looking at cadence 100% of the time with every single runner in my clinic. I want to know what their steps per minute looks like. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you can look it up, but it's basically number of steps per minute between both feet. Um, foot strike pattern. Are they a rear foot striker, mid foot striker, or forefoot striker? I'm going to look at trunk lean. Are they, uh, is their trunk flexed or are they very upright? Um, I'm going to look for overstriding. So 
that's a little bit different than stride length. So stride length could also take into account that they have a ton of hip extension. I'm more specifically interested in overstriding and that's really how far into flexion is the hip and how far extended is the knee going as far as that anterior step length, um, which is very closely associated with tibial inclination angle. Um, so a more extended tibia and then also closely associated with foot strike pattern. Um, I'm looking for knee window. So that can give us a little bit of information about step width. Um, and then which specifically step width is something that I'm looking for. Do they have a scissoring gait um, or are they nice and underneath the, underneath the shoulders as they run? Uh, I'm looking for pelvic drop, which can tell me about hip, hip adduction. Um, so knee, knee window can also give a little bit of information about that. And then the last thing that I'm truly looking for is the vertical center of motion or center of mass displacement, how far up and down the person goes when they run. And all of these things, some are easier to measure than others. Some of them to measure, you need slow motion equipment. So most modern cell phones, you can slow things down. Um, some cell phones have apps that you can download on your phone that allow you to put lines and take anglement measures. You don't need to go out and spend $50,000 on a motion analysis system. You can do it on your phone. You can download, uh, I think there's an app called Huddle. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's an app that you can download on your computer. It's called Canovia or something along those lines um, to do your anglement or your angle measures and your distance measures. Um, and th these are really all of the things that it appears that the evidence is mostly in the favor of looking at those things. Now, there's so many other things you can look at. You can get into the foot mechanics and what their calcaneal eversion looks like and what their in-towing and their foot progression angle looks like. Um, but we really don't have as much solid evidence that we can, one, change those things, and two, um, if we change those things, what kinetic and kinematic variables are changed because of those things. Yeah. Yeah, so obviously, again, like you said, the consensus on – Number one, what we're looking for. I mean, we have probably more consensus on like what factors to look for than we do of what is the impact of changing said factors. Sure. I think there's only, there's probably a, a good handful, especially when we talk about something like cadence. I think there's a, a really good amount of evidence that shows that, you know, addressing that fixes a lot of things um, or addresses a lot of things simultaneously. Um, but I think it's it's good, like what you said, in terms of we have so many different factors and you have to take each of them with context in terms of what you're looking at. Because um, you can, I mean, one of the best things we can do as physical therapists is look at somebody's movement and just completely pick it apart. Right. And anybody coming off the street, we can tell you, you know, your squat, you know, how you squat is wrong. <laughs> like we can tell you a lot of different movement issues and issues I say in quotes, um, but things that wouldn't be like a perfect textbook movement. And that could mean absolutely nothing for the person. So like, absolutely. They're like their inclination of forward trunk lean like that could mean nothing. It could just be, that's just how they are. Mm -hmm. um, so taking all that stuff, like you said, into context, I think is really important. So in terms of, you know, obviously we have a lot of these variables. What are some of the variables that like you particularly focus on? You know, if you're going to take that path of really addressing their biomechanics or the running sure. form, like what are the biggest things, whether it be um, cues that you use or, um, you know, particular movement drills um, that you focus on to impact their running form to get like as much benefit as you possibly can. Sure. Yeah. So I think as far as my understanding of the literature, it appears that changing cadence has the most consistent evidence of support across the board uh, as far as what it can change. So we know that increasing cadence can decrease the tendency of being a heel striker. It can make you more of a midfoot to forefoot striker. Um, increasing your cadence can reduce your vertical center of mass displacement, which thus in turn reduces your ground reaction forces. Uh, increasing cadence reduces overstriding, reduces tibial inclination, and it even widens your step length a little bit. So all of those things are variables you can work on individually, 
or you can just try to increase cadence. And if you start with cadence, I find that most of the time you get a positive response to it. One, because it's the easiest thing for the patient to work on. That's the easiest, in my, in my clinical ex experience so far, changing cadence is the easiest thing for the patient to do because you can use auditory, auditory cueing and then they just run to the beat. Mm -hmm. um, as far as how, how much I increase their cadence, that very highly depends on the runner in front of me. Um, if they are um, well below that, that kind of target cadence, I know a lot of the literature reports like uh, 180 steps per minute, um, but really if someone's below uh, 160 steps per minute, that would be a really slow cadence. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to start in very small increments to increase their cadence um, because they're probably not very, and I'm, I'm really not trying to be mean here, but if their cadence is very, very slow, they're probably not the greatest runners mm -hmm. out there as far as competitiveness and um, athlete level. Yeah. So with those runners, I'm starting very small. And actually the literature shows that 10% increase in cadence can actually improve all of those variables we talked about already. Um, and a 10% increase is to the runner feels very small. So it's, you're, that's not a big ask for the runner to change. And so that's why I think it's the easiest thing for a runner to adapt. Mm -hmm. Um, and as far as other things that we can change, um, some other things that are relatively uh, more difficult, but still manageable for runners, um, specifically relates to, um, knee window. So if someone's running and their knees are touching, you can say, keep, keep that space between your knees. Uh, and then you can use mirror training. Um, or you can even put, um, I've had some, I've seen some therapists put like uh, a light TheraBand around the knees and say, keep the tension in it while you're running. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different strategies you can, you can do to provide feedback on that. Um, and this is really, I think this falls into the bucket of like real-time feedback versus like auditory feedback. So that auditory feedback is your cadence. And then your real-time feedback is these people need visual cues for what they're doing and why it's wrong. Yeah. Um, and then one of the other things that I'll try to fix if I'm not getting it with cadence or thinking about the knee window is drawing two lines on the treadmill with chalk and saying, I want you to run with your feet on this. On these two lines, don't let your feet cross this line or mm -hmm. these lines. Um, and I think this kind of gets into the, the crux of the issue with changing mechanics is does it do any good? If we change a mechanic in the clinic, is it going to last? Mm -hmm. Do these, do these changes last over time? And according to the evidence, one to three months. Yes, Absolutely. There are a number of studies out there right now that show that if we implement running uh, mechanics changes and gait changes in a one to three month window, we see a carryover. We see that those changes did last and that's mm -hmm. awesome. Unfortunately, every study requires funding and most studies can't afford to continue the length of their studies over time. So we have no idea if these changes last a year down the road or two years down the road. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly a little bit of a problem. When we yeah. talk about like the longevity of these people and the carryover that we have, which is typically why we have these individuals come into us multiple times <laughs> over the course of their running careers. Um, Cause they need some tune-ups exactly. as we call them, <laughs> or as I, I would call them to them, just come in for a little tune-up. Um, yeah. But that's, I would say like, I don't have a ton of experience with runners, but I would say that, through my mentorship, through my residency and such, I've seen some runners um, that cadence almost automatically, like I won't say fixes, but vastly improves that the large majority of any type of biomechanical issues or faults that are going on simply right. because the body is essentially forced to run more efficiently. Absolutely. So like it just figures out how to do everything more efficiently by giving it that external cue, whether that be that auditory cue or, you know, we were talking, you were talking about that visual cue and that's another benefit of using like, um, like a camera to record their running. Um, sometimes with runners, what I'll do is like record them 
their first day in, give them that motion. And if you use something like that huddle app, like you can send that video to them mm-hmm. um, with all of your notes and things like that on it. And then the next, you know, a few weeks down the line, we can take another video and it can just be like a regular objective assessment in terms of that right. test retest aspect. And it's nice for them to be able to see, because if you are a visual learner, um, that helps. It helps to kind of know like what your hips are doing, what your knees are doing, you know, um, it, it allows them to visualize it a little bit better because they, they clearly, it's very hard to know what every single joint in your body is doing as you run. Totally. Unless somebody points it out to you. Sure. And especially because when we think about the nature of running, this is a, a an extremely, extremely ingrained motor pattern. Yeah. Running involves thousands of steps per run, per run. And then if we start to accumulate multiple runs per week, now we're looking at tens of thousands of steps per week, hundreds of thousands of steps per week, millions of steps per year. That's an extremely reinforced motor pattern. That change is not going to occur without some type of systematic motor control approach and taking into account the principles of neuroplasticity and um, motor control training. And that requires feedback, right? That requires early feedback, probably a lot of feedback early on. Um, I, I think it's called the oh man, the acquisition phase of learning a new task, right? Yep. So th- this, it really requires a lot of external stimuli. And honestly, one of the best stimuli that I think that is the most salient to, to keep the principles of neuroplasticity, one of the principles or uh, stimuli that's the most salient to runners, and this doesn't work for every runner, but is pain. Mm-hmm. So if you change a running mechanic and they no longer have pain when they run, you can use that as your stimulus or your, uh, your cueing. You can say, oh, sure. And you can u- utilize other, other measures of stimuli too. But if you can say, just run in the way that makes you not have pain and show them what that way looks like, they're probably going to get it pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah. Especially because these are the people that have had pain for some time and it's something that pops up and down. It goes all over the place in terms of its overall presentation. But no, 100%. Anytime, and that goes for really anything. If you can come in and, you know, show them a way to almost automatically get rid of their pain or severely or significantly reduce it, they're going to want to come back to you. And they're going to want Absolutely. to. They're going to want to do, most importantly, like, I don't even care if they come back to me. Like, I just want them, like, to do what's going to be beneficial for them. That's right. That's it. Um, yeah. As that's a very important point just in terms of just physical therapy practice just as a whole because that is a challenge sometimes with people um, not oh, necessarily totally. the runners who are very active and truly truly want to get better um, but some of some other patients can be a little bit difficult for sure yep for sure um, so I think we had a pretty good discussion about quite a few different subjects in terms of um, you know, some of the common things we see with the running population, some treatment approaches, um, and then also looking at the impact and variables of running biomechanics. So um, I think we can end it there. But before you go, I want you to take five minutes or whatever you'd like um, to, you know, tell everybody where they can find you, any special projects you're working on. anything at all um as a you know thank you for coming on and yeah chatting with me sure absolutely yeah so <laughs> i really i want to um give a, a big shout out um because to one drexel university's orthopedic residency uh, and the mentorship that i received there to working with running related injuries um so dr rob mashey and dr kevin guard um both very very good runners. Um, They've competed in many different races uh, and they just truly have a tremendous knowledge and understanding of running related injuries. Um, And what we talked about today, uh, if people don't have any experience with running related injuries, it might seem like I am very well versed in this. It doesn't even touch the surface of everything there is to think about with running related injuries. And I'm just so thankful for that mentorship that I got with working with this population 
Um, but also for anybody that's super interested in learning more about how to implement this into your clinic and how to implement um, running analysis in your uh, with your runners, because you should be, you should be looking at a runner's running mechanics if they have a running related injury. Um, I would point you in the direction of two pretty good articles. So the first one is by Irene Davis and Aaron Futrell. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Um, but that article is called Gait Retraining, Altering the Fingerprint of Gait. And then the other article is by Richard B. Souza or Souza. Again, sorry if I mispronounced that name. Uh, and that article is called An Evidence-Based Videotaped Running Biomechanics Analysis. Both of these articles do a really good job at kind of simplifying what the, the grand scheme of the evidence looks out there and what changing various mechanics and variables can do overall as a whole, uh, and also specific things that you should look for in your running analysis. Um, so you don't really need to truly understand all of the kinematics and kin, uh, kinetic variables and truly be an expert in the biomechanics. I think that those two articles that I just said are a great place to, to start um, to implement this stuff into your clinic. And then as far as me, where you can find me, I'm in Southern Delaware uh, with a company called Premier Physical Therapy and Sports Performance. Uh, I recently made the move from Philadelphia down to Delaware uh, it's a, uh, a def definitely a little bit of an older population, uh, but there's some works uh, with contracted athletic trainers um, with the high schools that are in the area. And really, I'm, I'm coming down to try to build that uh, program and try to get more athletes in the building and develop better relationships with the schools in the areas. And um, whether it be working directly with the athletic trainers or working through more of a partnership style, um, but really just uh, identifying the area of need and hopefully uh, getting that up and running and developing some, some closer relationships. Um, if you want to get a hold of me and uh, maybe I was wrong about some things today and you want to call me out for that, please do it. I'm all about learning. I'm all about people telling me I'm wrong. Um, you can email me at mattmary at premierptsp.com or uh, you can find me on the Postdoc PT Experience. It's a podcast available everywhere um, to learn more about residency information, uh, regardless of what type it is, if you want to learn more about that. Uh, and there's an email on that page that you can reach me at too. So, um, Zach, I, I, I can't uh, thank you enough for having me on. Um, I am by no means an expert in running mechanics, but I appreciate the, uh, the consideration.